This is Marina Guimarães for Wikistrat. Our podcast discusses global events that might affect political scenarios across the globe. This week's topic is Afghanistan withdrawal, and to talk about it, we invited Michael O'Hanlon. Mr. O'Hanlon is a senior fellow and director of research at Brookings, specializing in U.S. defense strategy and the use of military force. Mr. O'Hanlon, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you today. Thank you. So let's start with the $1 million question. <laughs> is this the right time to leave Afghanistan? Hi, Marina. Well, you know, again, good question. And I think it's not a good time to leave Afghanistan. Some people will say, President Biden said, you know, if not now, when? I mean, we've been there 20 years already. And by the way, we're actually not really leaving, right? We're going to have almost a thousand troops still protecting the embassy and the airport. But at least for the time being. But, you know, we had only seen a peace process really pick up in the last two years. We had only seen the Afghan Air Force near its completion in the last couple of years. We uh, had not really given the Taliban a chance to accept that we are intending to stay through multiple presidencies, you know, all through. The second Obama term, we were always having annual reviews to perhaps leave the next year. Trump was always saying he would leave quickly, perhaps. And now Biden has done just that. So the idea of just settling in for a protracted period of attempted negotiation where the Taliban cannot simply assume they can outweigh us. We never tried that strategy. And you might say, well, all those strategies, all those philosophies, they were long shots. They probably wouldn't have worked, at least not quickly. And at some point, don't we have to just recognize reality? But I would say we were down to 3,000 U.S. troops. That was a 97% reduction, 97% reduction from where we had been in the buildup during the early Obama years. And there was no need to rush out at that level of American effort. It was sustainable for some indefinite period of time. And I think we've proven in our history we're capable of sustaining actually much larger military presence for much longer a time period if need be when our security interests so dictate. So I think it was a mistake. And also announcing this in April and then having the troops largely gone by July, that's an extremely fast withdrawal, which then had a number of problems, one of which was the American and Western contractors who helped keep that Afghan Air Force flying no longer had places from which they could do their work. So now the entire Afghan Air Force that we worked so hard to build is at risk of being grounded, which would have huge consequences for the future fight. And then secondly, the psychological climate, this idea of precipitous and rapid withdrawal uh, creates the greater likelihood of Afghans losing heart, people who support the government, people who support pluralism and modernism essentially feeling like the whole system is becoming a house of cards and they better get out or better, you know, relocate while they can. That's the kind of psychological spiral that could really lead to the rapid downfall of the government. So I think not only leaving this year, but leaving this year within three months of declaring our intention to do so, those were two major mistakes and I regret them both. And what about the people who made profit from the troops' presence. So, for example, what about the local communities who used to make some kind of money from the U.S. presence in Afghanistan? Well, there are at least two categories of those kinds of people. One group, frankly, was part of the problem. People who benefited from the amount of money that was flowing in 
and figured out a way to direct it to their cronies, not always in a fair way, often in a corrupt way, often in a, in a way that did, did not produce good material results for the amount of money that was spent. And that was part of the American frustration with this whole effort and also part of the Afghan frustration. It's part of why the Taliban could find recruits because many people were angry at the whole system that the government and private business and the crony system of Afghanistan perpetuated. And our money, when it flowed in so quickly, especially in 2009, 10, 11, it was an accelerant. We were part of the problem. So I accept that that was regrettable and that we made mistakes, certainly. But then getting more specifically to the groups that you mentioned, and especially the interpreters and those who worked side by side, who fought shoulder to shoulder, Yes, we are leaving them vulnerable unless we make some very rapid last minute adjustments in our resettlement policy. And again, the danger here is twofold. One, that we will actually leave some of these people at the hands and the mercy of the Taliban. and We won't figure out a way to protect them or get them out soon enough. But secondly, you know, I don't think that all of them need to leave right now. And I hope that many of them will never need to leave because I hope that Afghanistan will not completely fall apart and that the Taliban will not completely take power. But to the extent we create this sense of imminent catastrophe that, you know, we all we're talking about in the Western media is that we have to get these interpreters out. That reinforces the narrative that Afghanistan is on the verge of collapse. And to the extent that that narrative is reinforced, it becomes self-fulfilling. People hear it, they read it, and then they act upon it. And that increases the chances the Taliban can win power without even really having to defeat the government. The government itself will largely collapse because we've had all this public outcry of the need to protect the interpreters. I would have preferred to create those mechanisms quietly, gradually, while we had an ongoing American and NATO presence in Afghanistan. And then if you need them later, they are there. But you, you don't spend most of the summer frantically searching for a solution, which again creates the sense that everybody can see that the only question about when the Afghan government will fall is when, not if. I don't agree. I think the Afghan government may hold on to a decent chunk of the country. But to the extent that everyone believes it can't or it won't, then that could become a self fulfilling prophecy. So that's one more issue with the interpreters that we've created with this sudden decision to get out so fast. And can the troop withdrawal create a potential ground for other terrorist groups, such as Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State? Does it create uh, regional security concerns in neighboring countries as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, first of all, There are a lot of things we can try to do to prevent a big sanctuary for terrorists from developing on Afghan soil in the future. We have a lot of satellites. We have a lot of airplanes. We can fly them from the Indian Ocean. We can fly them from the Middle East. We can perhaps base some of them in neighboring countries, although I'm not exactly sure where. We might put some of them on the ground covertly within Afghanistan, within you know certain parts of the country, without even saying so publicly. But even if we do all that, it's going to take a lot of effort. And I'm not sure it's going to be less effort than we were providing prior to President Biden's decision to leave. So there's a good chance we can still protect ourselves here, but it's going to be hard. It's going to take work. It's going to be less certain. And there's a chance it will fail. There's a chance it will fail just as, you know, ISIS was able to rise in Iraq when we left Iraq quickly in 2011. And then the internal dynamics within Iraq 
produced an opportunity for ISIS. And then, of course, we saw terrorist strikes within Europe in particular coming out of Iraq and Syria in the next couple of years. So that same thing could happen. I don't think it's likely to produce another 9-11, but it could. It certainly could produce some more downed jetliners, some more shootings in major cities, some more truck bombings or truck attacks on crowds, the kind of thing we saw in Europe in 2015, 16, 17. And, uh, and moreover, it certainly will happen in parts of Afghanistan. So certainly the extremists who are often affiliated with the Taliban, Connie Network is both a part of the Taliban and a part of Al-Qaeda, as the UN has documented which means the Taliban were never in compliance with the February 29th, 2020 peace agreement. And therefore, we were not obliged to hold up our end and leave the way that agreement seemed to indicate that we should. In any event, the terrorist ties are still there. We have to assume the word. The Taliban is not going to want to invite another big Western or U.S. attack on its territory. So I don't think they're going to actively encourage al-Qaeda to attack the West out of bases on Afghan soil. But there could be a more quiet form of collaboration that poses its own dangers and necessitates a lot of American effort. The bottom line is it's going to make this whole conundrum, this whole complex of issues, I think it's going to make life more dangerous within Afghanistan and make counterterrorism more complicated for us. Even if we are able to be successful in protecting our homelands in the West, I think we will have to do it in a more you know, laborious way from longer range with less certain results. And again, about the gap, what role can China play in a post-withdrawal Afghanistan? I think the Chinese are too smart to get involved in Afghanistan very much. <laughs> I think they, you know, maybe they're um, a little cynical. They don't have quite the same humanitarian streak that we do. Sometimes when we have that streak, we're not very effective in producing good human rights results. And so perhaps that's part of the, you know, the, the frustration here. But I don't think China is even going to try. If China tries to do something in Afghanistan, they're going to try to seal off the border so there can't be you know, effects on their own Uyghur populations, for example, can't be you know, supplying of any Uyghur extremists, who I don't think are very numerous, but the Chinese worry about them all the time. You wouldn't want to have, if you were Chinese uh, or have the Chinese government's interest, would be to try to prevent any groups, any extremist groups in South Asia from arming, aiding, abetting any separatists or terrorists within northwestern China. So I think the Chinese will work hard at monitoring that border. If there is a way for the Chinese to extract some minerals from Afghanistan at minimal risk and minimal cost, they may do it. But I don't think they're going to want to pacify most of the country in order to get at this purported trillion-dollar trove of Afghan minerals. I think the Chinese will find safer places to do their exploration. Thank you very much. And what about Iran, who was recently excluded from U.S. Taliban talks in Doha? Does the U.S. withdrawal open the doors to the Islamic Republic? What about Russia? Any interest in the region? Who can profit or benefit from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, first of all, some of these countries may have wanted us to fail. Uh, because, let's say, Russia under Vladimir Putin has often wanted to take the United States down a peg. And much of the Pakistani security apparatus is angry at us for leaving them holding the bag on Afghanistan, a combined effort against the Mujahideen back in the late 1980s. And so they've always been, you know, playing a double game, hoping that we would, you know, suffer a little bit of a blow to our prestige or 
So anyway, and certainly Iran doesn't wish anything good for the United States. But now that the United States has decided to leave, those three countries and others have a primary interest in not having Afghanistan's problems spill over into their own territories, whether it's refugees or terrorists or any other such problem, opium. And so at this point, I think the whole world would prefer to see Afghanistan stay as stable as possible. And of course, the Pakistanis always wanted the Taliban as their instrument of potential, sort of a backup plan in case the internationally blessed government fell, that there could be a group that Pakistan might influence, like the Taliban, that would be at least some way to semi-stabilize the country. Well, I think that was probably a bad idea by Pakistan all along, because I don't think the Taliban are going to be a stabilizing influence, and I'm not even sure they can control the whole country. So now everyone's interest at least sort of aligns. The United States has suffered a blow, and, and yet now we all have worries that Afghanistan could become you know, a problem that spills over its own borders into other places. Unfortunately, that doesn't really provide good solutions. You know, I think a lot of people will spend more money on their border security with Afghanistan, trying to monitor flows, but there will still be refugee flows. There will still be potentially some terrorist movement. And so everybody's got a problem. And the countries that were sort of rooting for us to fail, they may now regret what they wished for, even if they got it. And, you know, at least before, there was a limit on just how bad Afghanistan could get for its neighbors. And now some of that limitation has been removed. Well, we could stay here talking for hours, but unfortunately, our time is done. You are a very busy person. So thank you so much, Mr. O'Hanlon, for your contribution. Thank you, Marina. Nice to be with you today. This is Marina Guimarães for Wikistrat.